0: Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with the slightly technically frazzled
1: Ben. Hello, Ben. <laughs> well, after some time, I can say that I am here, even though I wasn't several minutes or seconds or even half an hour ago. Um, but it's, uh, it's nice to be here eventually, mate. Our
0: guest for this episode is musician, composer and ethnomusicologist Julian Lynch. Amongst his work, Julian is guitarist in real estate. And he shared with us versions of a demo, two versions, in fact, which are a great insight into the band. But Ben, this is just the kicking off point, really.
1: It is, really. And it's another one of those lovely connections coming to uh, come in to find Julian through listening to another podcast and then hearing a reference to him. And some of the kind of I suppose you could loosely broad, um, you know, box it as outsider music that he's made on his own, all made without any demoing process and then finding that he's also part of, uh, real, real estate. And even that barely touches what the man's done. Um, it's a, it's a magical story and it brings again, something completely unique and fascinating to, to this, this show, doesn't it?
0: It, re- it really does. That's one of the things that I really took away from this conversation is, um, Well, the wealth of solo material that he's got for a start. I mean, there's a link in the show notes to his Bandcamp page, but there's so much to explore and it's really great stuff too.
1: It is. And we did we didn't even get into the conversation about his solo career. I mean, he references it in a couple of the conversations in relation to other aspects of his kind of musical music making and the kind of journey into it. But we didn't even get into opening the can on some of that solo work. And we definitely are going to have him back on because, as you say, it's really interesting stuff and it really merits, really merits some further, more insightful discussion about that.
0: It does. It does. I think um, a lot of the conversation is taken up by these these two demos and where it came from and where it took him and where it took the band and his relationship in the band with the other musicians. Um, but it's a real, um, in many ways, it's very very on brand for songs for a padded envelope, isn't? It? Okay. And then and then you can listen to the listen to the finished version of the uh, of the song, also a but uh, which is on Real Estate's most recent album. Um, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. But it's another one of those, much like the Carl Cochelin episode, where you get to see this the evolution of the song and have it unpicked by by the person that started started the initial idea off.
1: Yeah, we got we got a lovely story about the the f- sort of first inception. Of this song in true sort of form and fashion and then like you say the level of detail i mean the the two versions that um, that julian sent over the one which is like minutes after he has the idea for the song in his head um and then a really really brilliant sort of phone recording from the from their sort of pre-album rehearsals it's and i think listen to those two and then go and check out the final vi- version on the real estate album as well it's it has a brilliant insightful kind of look at how a song comes together and and what was lovely about it was the well not just in reference to this uh, this particular handing over of a piece of music into the hands of other musicians but there's a level of generosity that Julian approaches his life with and his music making and it comes across in spade loads in this conversation she can really see when he looks back and and views how the song has evolved with the contributions of other people and how he uh, the worth that he gives to that it's it's fantastic isn't it
0: yeah it, re- it really is and I, I i mean i went and listened to the track after um doing the the sort of initial edit and putting the demos on and then i went to listen to the album version again and you do get that insight and, and Julian does talk about it really well. But what you also get is um, it kind of enhances the magic of the unspoken stuff, you know, the creative process, the thing that happens when musicians play, play together and when an idea develops, you can only really articulate that to a point and then there's something else. Yeah, it for sure. It sort of underlines that stuff really, like the magic really comes through.
1: And I love I love the fact that these the people in real estate, they're lifelong friendships that he's had with these people, yeah. but it comes to them in terms of playing music with them much, much later in his life. And when he talks about um I love when he talks about the sort of how the first music that lands with you is your own music, how that and the the sort of collective bond about the people in your circle that you share that sort of first music with, how it kind of kicks everything on off and then everything expands from that point. You can sort of track it back and see, you know, the sort of trajectory that you that you end up on from that point.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And then further further than that, it, there's a, a this is a really great example of where music can take you. You know, you're talking about the relationships and and <clears throat> what kicks on from those initial formative relationships. But where music has taken Julian is just truly fascinating we've not had a conversation like it i don't think possibly andre chan uh, chan but uh, but i don't think anybody else has really had the sort of uh, breadth of experience that that julian's had through his music
1: it's completely unique and i guess we're not gonna we're not gonna appreciate it too much in the conversation now because mm. people should kind of come to it and appreciate and appreciate it for the difference and i think our intention is to to rejoin julian at a later stage to kind of tap into some of the music that came out through that particular story um yeah you i don't think the listener will be able to predict where some of this conversation goes um and the sort of ramifications for that
0: yeah yeah it's brilliant stuff uh thanks to julian uh, for coming on the show Do check out um, the final version of Also a But in the links below, along with a link to Julian's fantastic solo work through his Bandcamp page.
1: And on that note, let's go over to episode 46 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Julian Lynch.
2: My name is Julian Lynch. I play guitar in the band Real Estate and I also make solo music. Uh, and the songs that we'll be listening to on the podcast today are a couple different versions of a song that came to be known as Also a But. Um, it appears on the most recent real estate LP, which is called The Main Thing. And uh, I sent along a, a couple demo versions. Actually, one demo version, one sort of rehearsal version. And both of those, I think you'll hear, are pretty different than how the recording ended up.
0: Yeah. Well, look, Julian, thank you for coming on the show. And as you say, you've given us a, a really unique insight into how a song comes together. Cause through the two versions you've sent of uh, also a, but um, both of these are very much not the finished article. Can you give us a bit more detail on the story of how this song came into being?
2: Sure. Yeah. I guess it depends on how much detail you want, but uh, oh, as much well, as, as you've got. As as this can, show, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. So, um, i uh i think i had joined i joined real estate about a year prior to recording this demo and i kind of I, I had been friends with the guys from real estate since high school basically um, and i kind of was aware that the the way the band operated in their creative process was that the lead singer martin was sort of the primary songwriter <clears throat> but that each album other members of the band would usually contribute like a track or two. So I knew, and I, you know, Martin was very open about this, uh, that any band member was kind of welcome to contribute tracks. If they thought it sort of fit in with the, the general vibe of the band. Um, and the stuff I was recording for my solo project at the time was pretty divergent from what real estate was doing. So it wouldn't, it, it was really clear when I would write like new material, like this wouldn't work for real estate, but, um, I had this uh, like I sound kind of like cliche saying it, but like I had an idea for a song when I was like in the shower, um, and I knew it would work for real estate because I kind of envisioned the arrangement in my head as being one that that was you know the exact arrangement of of the band, two guitars and keyboard and bass and drums, which is rarely sort of the way things shake out with my solo recordings. um and just because i I heard it as being something that could be performed with a band like that really easily. I was pretty excited to get out of the shower and quickly throw a demo down, um, which I did. So the demo you heard, I was probably still wet while I was <laughs> recording. <that. laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think you know basically what I what I wanted to accomplish with the song was like have sort of um, uh, sort of this um, hypnotic kind of uh, interlocking. Rhythmic part between the guitars, although that those two parts kind of later morphed as being between Martin's guitar and and Matt, the keyboard player, his keyboard part. Um, But I kind of wanted this like sort of hypnotic thing happening in the verses. Um, I wanted kind of like a a song with like a lot of modulation. I I kind of wanted to like model it on like prog rock songs that I liked, which um, would modulate key throughout the songs, um, would have like... uh, key change and tempo changes. So there's like a tempo change in the song and it, and it goes into this sort of like Mixolydian jam modal section. Um, I kind of wanted all that kind of like prog rock excess. I wanted to distill, but I also kind of wanted like the vibe of sort of like a shoegazy type song. Something, something that had like the, um, the sort of like s- sonic effect of something more like Cocteau Twins or My Bloody Valentine, but with almost prog structure. So, and I, and like, you know, I never, I don't do stuff like that. I don't conceive of music that way with my solo recordings, nor do I ever demo stuff for my solo recordings. I I told Ben about that. Um, and so this was kind of like a unique thing for me, where it's like, okay, well I have this, like, um, I conceived of this song in this way in in terms of these sort of like, uh, genre references. And, and I also like have an idea for a song that would be playable by an actual band, which is again, rarely, the case with my solo music. So I was excited to record this demo, send it to the other guys in the band and ask them if they'd be okay with, with, um, giving it a shot for the next record. And they were. Is that, is that
1: something that happens quite often to you that you're able to kind of envisage a whole song in its complete form with all the constituent parts?
2: No, not really. And I don't usually attempt to, um, or it's not, it's not usually a goal of mine because the way I approach, by solo work, usually I, I think I. Um, I don't know why I default to this approach, but I, I sort of enjoy it. Also, um, I won't really know what a song will sound like when I start it. I really have no idea where a song is going when I start recording solo work. Um, so this was completely different than that because when you're when you're presenting it to other actual human beings, you have to have something, you know, something to to show them as. As being kind of a, a half-baked thought at least um so that was another clue for me that you know this was something that i, I could bring to the table with with the band at our next rehearsal
0: because you know, you know the the rest of the guys in the band so well as you said you've known them since high school and yeah. and they're also you're aware of each other's music and the way that you write i'm sure is a, and you, you've talked about the creative process with with, with those guys mm-hmm. um what was their response to this demo when you presented it to them then? Was there some sort of surprise attached to it? Or it's it? hard to
2: tell because it was all over email. So I, I don't remember okay. exactly what the responses were in writing. I think they liked it. They liked it. You know, if they didn't like it, at least they like kept it to themselves up until this point and allowed me to indulge myself in recording it in the studio. But um, yeah, I think they were into it. I think um, I think the band had been already moving in a direction where they wanted to do stuff that um would allow for more like improvisation live and um it just kind of seemed like a good moment to present something like this to the band because i think when i listened to like a lot of their earlier records before i joined the band it seemed like they were more into um doing stuff that would revolve around maybe like a couple chords sort of vamping um things like that and uh i know martin was starting to write stuff that had like, you know, a lot more like almost like Steely Dan type chord structures and those kinds of things. So it seemed like they were, they were interested in, in having something that, you know, had a little bit more variety in terms of changes, uh, chord changes. And um, yeah, it just seemed like, you know, it was, um it was the right time to, to play around with something like this or just, you know, something that would be fun for us to approach in a live setting. Um, so I hope that they were, They had a good reaction to it initially. It's very loose. Like the way I recorded the demo is like really loose, and um, a lot of the structures did not tighten up until like a couple iterations in. Uh, So you know, they I'm sure like their initial thought was maybe some level of confusion as to like okay, I can hear that this there's one section here and it goes to this next section here, but I don't really understand why like in the demo you like sort of stop playing between them. It's just like really loose um but actually that was like part of what i wanted to accomplish with it uh actually something i can tell you about the the final product is that in the studio um jackson the drummer he's actually left the band but he was playing drums at the time and he's like an amazing drummer he's a really fantastic drummer i love the way he plays but he he's very into i think i don't want to speak for him but i think he really likes using a click in the studio and um with this kind of song, I knew that that wasn't something I wanted to do, but I didn't really want to um, encroach on his creative choices when we started recording it. So he was like initially working with a click and um, the energy was really kind of flat, which I think works for a lot of real estate's material, but I wanted like a lot of dynamic in this song. Um, that was like one of the other things I wanted to accomplish with it was, was have something that, that built up to like really big sounding choruses um and it wasn't until the producer of the record whose name was kevin mcmahon suggested to jackson uh that he stop using the click that the song really like came to life in the studio i think you can actually kind of hear what it sounded like before on that second version i sent you where the the drums are um have a lot less energy uh from one section to another and then when you know as soon as he stopped playing with a click it really kind of exploded he had these really crazy fills he was doing and just like honestly one of my favorite drum performances that i've heard him do so i was really happy with how the drums ended up
1: oh that's great T- yeah. tell us about the the second version that you sent over was from the sort of pre-album rehearsals Yeah, tell us about tell us about how that was and how the band works before the recording of the record
2: sure yeah so um it sounds like maybe similar situation as the two of you guys where we don't live in the same cities so we we get together for rehearsals when we can basically um and that hasn't happened now for over a year but um uh I think it, it probably was at least a few months until I saw those guys after I recorded that first demo. We got together in um upstate New York where we usually rehearse which is kind of near where Martin lives and um you know I showed I showed the guys roughly how I thought the parts should sound and um, I think they they did some work on their own, like working out parts uh, at home. And um, by that point, I didn't have lyrics written, which is kind of, I think that's kind of how all of us, or at least me and Martin, seem to write songs. Um, we usually present the band with instrumental work and then figure out the lyrics later. Although I think with Martin's songs, usually there's more of a sense of like, okay, lyrics are going to go in this section and it's going to repeat. Four times or whatever, and then move on to the next section. Whereas this one, like I said, I kind of wanted to keep it really loose, and I I didn't really want um like intuitive patterns in terms of where sections would begin or end necessarily. So we kind of just were playing sections for however long it it felt right to do when we were rehearsing it. Um, so I, I can't remember. I think I think like the core uh, the verses are like you know more than twice the length of how they ended up uh, in the final version when you listen to that, that band rehearsal version. Um, but yeah, there things were I think falling more into place in terms of what the song would become in that version. There's still, if I'm remembering correctly, I was still doing one of the two rhythm parts and Matt Coleman, the keyboard player was, was doing some like lead lines on synth, uh, and that would later kind of switch. And I would start doing like lead stuff with slide during the verses. Um, but I think otherwise, you know, like the, the stuff that a lot of the other band members were doing was pretty similar to how it would end up. And we, we had an idea of like, okay, this is going to be this jam modal section and we'll go crazy live during this part. It'll be really fun. Um, uh, and then we'll come back somehow. I remember that being a really confusing <laughs> thing. It's like, how do we end this? And how do we go back into the, into the B section or whatever? Um, and that kind of like, it was, uh, It became a fun challenge i think and like a a thing that probably caused us to grow as a band um to like learn how to cue something up like that where um you know it's one thing to sort of cue up a a a change in a song but it's another thing to cue up something where um the timing is going to change there's going to be sort of a, a a pregnant pause before the section comes back in um, everyone has to stop playing and then like rely on a second cue from the drummer to come back in. So I think we actually, we, we weren't doing a good job with it in that recording I sent you. But by the time we recorded in the studio and started performing the song live, uh, it felt really good, actually. It felt like, um, you know, if nothing else, even if the song was a failure, uh, at least like as a band, we like learned to communicate. Uh, non-verbally a little bit better so um that felt really
0: good up up listening to the to the the two demos really nicely thank you so much for walking walking us through that um i was just wondering when you were when you were speaking then um about because you described having such a fully formed idea uh in the shower um how good are you at letting go of the your kind of core ideas when you hand something over into the band process and you and you hear it kind of opening up and diverging diff, into different uh, uh maybe places that you weren't imagining or you know it becomes a, a collective creative process are you are you quite good at letting go of that stuff
2: yeah i think i'm, I'm trying to grow as a person in that way because i think when i started playing music when i started playing in bands performing material that i had written when i was younger um, in my teen teen years and like in my early 20s and stuff like that i don't think i was good at that because i i think you know it would kind of it would frustrate me where it's like no no no, the sound i had in mind was not like what it's coming out to be and um that's like a uh i think that kind of approach can only lead to frustration and resentment among band members because ultimately especially with something that is going to be kind of loose um, you kind of just have to trust the people that you're playing with to make decisions that are right for them and um, you know, end up with some sort of aesthetic compromise. Um, so I think actually, you know, for like the decade leading up to me joining real estate, I was really just doing music on my own. I'd play in bands and stuff like that, but usually it usually wasn't my own material being performed. So this song was actually kind of a learning experience for me in that regard, where it was like, okay, um, I had this idea, but I have to kinda of just like mellow out about how it ends up sounding because like I want these guys to be, you know, able to express their ideas through this song too. So, you know, by the time we were in the studio, um, I think I reached a point where it was like, I, I trust these guys and I trust Kevin McMahon, the producer. I, I'm not positive, but I think I was actually like the way the recording process went, I think there were times where all of us were not in new york at the same time or not in the studio at the same time so i think there would be times where like Coleman would be tracking keyboards and i'd come back and be like cool that sounds great um because i know initially i was like i think maybe you could use if you're doing like synth leads on here like we can find like a moog for you to use or some sort of like monophonic synth." i don't remember what he ended up using but um everything with the keyboards ended up changing really and um and i liked all the choices that he made and they were totally different choices than what I would have envisioned for the song. Totally different kinds of equipment than I have access to or could imagine having access to. Um, and of course, he's also like, I'm not a keyboard player, uh, and he is an incredibly talented keyboard player. So he brought a lot to that part especially. That's kind of what, that's the, the best example of that kind of stuff I can think of is like, you know, what Common brought to the table in terms of his creativity. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I also, I feel like that, that was a point of personal growth for me and in not being um, in, in control of a, of a creative work that I shared with other people and watched it grow into something that was very different.
1: How close do you think it was in its finished version to what your initial kind of conception?
2: Um, it hit, everything that was important to me, uh, I think was realized in the finished version, honestly. I think it sounded completely different than what I thought it would sound like. It was structured completely different. Uh, I, I had no idea what kind of words I would end up writing or if I would end up writing words. And, um, you know, writing writing the vocal part was a whole other process that took me a really long time and went through a lot of different iterations and a lot of different kinds of lyrical subjects and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I couldn't be happier with the the finished product I'd say it, it um, yeah it hit hit all the the right points for me uh, in terms of what I was going for so
0: was yeah. it prog enough
2: yeah I think it, yeah and especially live <laughs> actually, <laughs> yeah uh, live it, it's kind of unfortunate that the pandemic hit when it did because we didn't we only got to perform it live a couple times before we all had to go home and do our thing for a year and a half or whatever um, but but the few times when we did play it live, it actually felt really good. It felt, um, you know, it, it felt the way I, I I wanted it to feel on the stage in terms of uh, the points of reference that I had in mind, you know. Felt like, because uh, I, I think I talked to the guys in the band, like when we were in the van before about how, like, we should write, uh we should do like an album that's like a Yes album where, you know, we have only two tracks, like a two, like 19 or 20 minute tracks for each side. I always wanted to write like a, a long piece of music like that. Um, and they, you know, like they all, they're all like, yeah, sure. You know, I think like, yeah, sure. it fell in their laps, but it's a lot of work to do something like that. So this is my, uh, like a, you know, whatever it is, one, uh, one third or one quarter of, of that. Do
1: you think, do you think they've got, do you think
2: they hooked on the idea or are they gently, gently humoring you? <laughs> Honestly, I think they would do it. Um, I think it would take it take a little bit of motivating but uh i think they would i think they'd all be down to do that actually uh you
0: need to make some make some capes for everybody (laughs) a nice personalized cape that you've made handmade
2: yeah i i have said i think to common before that like it'd be cool if he just got like more and more gear that he just had like a little castle he was hiding behind on his <laughs> keyboard's <laughs> on all sides of him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not it's not too
1: too distant from that when you take it out on an ice rink though, is it? So, right, yeah. Yeah, be Yeah. Careful with what you do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, sure.
0: Uh, yeah, this is like a little gateway drug song that you've that you've you've given everybody. No, Just a, a little taste, you. Of, a little prog taste. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> well, I uh, we, uh, take a bit of a left turn and, and can we take you back to the, the start and, and, and what part did music play in your life when you were growing up at home?
2: Um, well, I would say my, my neither of my parents are musicians. My dad, like, often jokes about the fact that he took piano lessons for like a decade and only learned one song. Um, but I had a piano in my house because my mom at some point wanted to take piano lessons and did it for a little while Um, and she stopped but like I got to you know tinker around with it when I was little we also had like some Ukrainian instruments around the house my mom is Ukrainian and her father actually was a Ukrainian folk uh, folk musician Um, it's weird that she doesn't really play any music at all she took some lessons but um, didn't really develop an interest but I had like instruments around the house and I'd like fool around and try to play stuff by ear with them. Um, I don't think I was ever, I did actually take lessons uh, on clarinet and piano when I was little, and I don't think I was ever very disciplined with those things. Um, I think my approach to like clarinet lessons was like, I'll get what I want out of this and kind of tune out all the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, really. But um, yeah, which is maybe the same kind of approach I still have to music where. Um, You know, I have I have the the, uh, I look for things that like can accommodate my own aesthetic vision or whatever. And, um, you know, the rest of the things are are kind of not as much of a focus to me. Um, But especially when I was taking like clarinet and piano lessons, it was not not really like I wasn't super motivated to be the best clarinetist in the orchestra or anything like that. I just wanted to like make weird sounds at home or whatever. Um, but then, um, I don't know why I, I, I wasn't like super like rock obsessed or anything when I was really young, but, um, at some point in middle school, I got like much more into rock music, um, and really wanted to learn how to play guitar. And I think I asked my parents if I could have a guitar for a really long time. And eventually they got me, a a guitar and, um, once I got a guitar, that was like it was a very different experience for me because I, I didn't really want to put it down. It was for whatever reason I think like, you know, hit hit me at the right time of puberty or, you know, adolescent anxiety or whatever, where um it was j ju- it, it was it had allowed me to focus a lot of my uh nervous energy. Um and um it just became something that that uh that I was hooked on for, you know, five or so years of my adolescence just like did not want to stop playing guitar and got much better at it a lot a lot faster than i did any other instrument that i ever tried to play before and um, played in bands and stuff the bands were all really pretty bad i don't think i'd want to listen to any of the music at this point but um there's one band i played in towards the end of high school with martin and bleaker that um that i think started to approach something that all of us wanted to see in future bands that we played in i think i think it wasn't it wasn't a perfect expression, but it, but it was sort of a good basis for um, where we would go in the future. So, um, yeah, I think, I, I think actually the experience then of playing with those guys also was really big for me because they sort of taught me how to collaborate with other people in a rock band. They taught me, you know, about new kinds of music that I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. Um, it, it's crazy to me that like. Uh, it's not it's not that long ago that like i was in high school it was um 20 years ago i was still in high school but the way i found out about music was you know not entirely different than how like you know my dad would have found out about music um whereas like from for our children a completely different world or even for me if i'm looking for new music um even like you know, towards the end of high school, there were things like all music and stuff like that, that, uh, that became a resource for learning about new bands and stuff like that, but and Napster, of course, but a lot of that was like really spotty. I don't know if you, uh, if you remember working with those kinds of, uh, platforms, but, um, really wasn't as, it wasn't a useful substitution for like going to a record store and like checking something out just because you liked the way the cover art looked or, or you saw that someone that you some name you recognize played on the record or something like that, or you just had a strong recommendation from a friend. So um, I think in the absence of meeting people like Martin and Bleecker, uh, I wouldn't have discovered a lot of the music that became really formative to what I wanted to play on my own. What What was the first
1: kind of rock? music do you remember the first kind of band or the first kind of songs that kind of hit the spot for you
2: yeah so martin and, uh, me martin and bleaker recently did a um kind of like A Q&A session with this school group at the middle school that we went to uh because now they have sort of a rock club at this school which they definitely didn't have when we were there but um we were talking about how like one of the things we like bonded over was wanting to play in a band that sounded like Weezer, um, which now that music has not aged particularly well for me and, and did not age for me much longer than high school. But um, something I mentioned I, that I to the, this group that I had forgotten about was that um, at least in the United States, Windows 95, like the version of Windows 95 that a lot of people got on for a lot of people their first computer their first like family computer came with a backup disk like an operating system backup disk that had a Weezer like promotional music video on it and you know all these like 11-year-old kids getting into rock music heard this music all at the same time and um it kind of created this weird explosion uh with like all all around the country um kids that sort of We're not particularly interested in um, what came to be on the radio in in the late nineties and early two thousands. We're more interested in, in, you know, alt rock or whatever that had come earlier in the nineties. And we're looking for something that was a little bit more contemporary than that. Uh, So even though like those records to me, like, I, I don't, I don't really have any interest in listening to them anymore. It was actually very uh, important uh, for me to, to, to listen to that because it, first of all, it created a basis of like musical communication between me and and people that would become my friends and longtime collaborators. And also there, you know, from there we started listening to other stuff that was um, stuff that we grew up, grew into a little bit more. Um, You know, from there, we listened to like Pixies and Sonic Youth and the fall and post-punk and um, lots of other stuff that, that would become more important to us, like later on as we went to college and stuff like that. So you know, um, to some extent, like any anything a thirteen year old listens to, they're going to like cringe at when they're thirty five. But um, but in this case, it was it became like very uh, practical on like a social level and also practical on like a uh, level of musical growth for us.
0: That first first Weezer album for sure. It, the pop songs on that record are amazing. Yeah. Absol- it- I remember- doing that for the first time I actually blasting out of a friend's van as he drove up uh i was living in london and he drove up outside our house yeah. and uh he said i can't stop playing this i've got to put it on we put it on and it was just just unbel- unbelievably catchy yeah feel good summertime
1: yeah you know uh pop i remember you loving that album though completely <laughs>
2: I think away. the thing that I loved most about it was like, uh, I think, uh, um, even when I was like younger and wasn't really listening to like rock music, like there'd be some like timbral element in songs that I would hear that like, I would really get like focused on. Um, and that was like, that's, I think that's what made me really love that first Weezer album was like the way the guitars sounded. Um, was like a big point of focus for me. Like the, the production of like those guitars was like something I got hung up on uh, early in high school and wanted to replicate in bands that I played and stuff like that. And of course, then became like a basis for like learn, uh, you know, before that I hadn't heard of, heard like the Melvins or something like that. And then I heard other bands where it's like, oh, okay. I think I just like the sound of like like, you know, Heavy mid-scooped guitars, which is not not something that I really—it's not a guitar sound that I that I use at this point, but um, but at the time, it was like this sounds really good, especially like recorded on like good like uh, good tape, um, like good analog recording of like of heavy mid scooped guitars, just sound and tuned down to you, just like sounded so crisp to my ears, and it became uh, like the thing that that I really loved about listening to those records when I was in high school.
0: Oh yeah 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 absolutely yeah, um, full tilt and it just yeah, yeah. It, it, they land they land they land so brilliantly yeah. so going from going from Weezer to um bands like Sonic Youth and The Fall were there, were there particular records that you came to first that, that that stuck with you I'm thinking of The Fall really because we had a conversation with Patrick Flegel a couple of weeks ago from um women yeah uh, we had a big chat about The Fall <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah huh?
2: big chat yeah,
0: yeah big <laughs> chat about the fall so i'm kind of interested to hear your your false fall uh, origin story
2: <laughs> i do i do know that the first fall record that i found in a store because it wasn't it wasn't very easy to find fall records where i lived and the first one i found was on cd and it was middle class revolt uh, which was like kind of like a uh sort of i think it was probably released in like 1996 or something like that you know so it was at the time is like a little bit more of a contemporary fall record. And then from there I was able to find, um, actually the, the way I found fall records after that was this record shop. that was like a a real record shop opened up in our town. And so they had, you know, like, um, I think they had, they had like the fall rough trade singles collection or something like that. And some other stuff there. Um, and so from there, I was able to hear like earlier records by the fall. And I was like, Oh man, this, you know, I had no idea it was a catalog that spanned decades. And, um, became a big fan from there, um, but yeah, I think that was the that was the first fall record that I heard. Uh, I think with Sonic Youth, it was probably you know like an album like Washing Machine or Goo was probably the first one that I heard because um, those they had been released quite a few years prior to when I heard them, but they were still kind of like um, they were easy to find in stores. I think. Uh, and then from there, like heard earlier records like Bad Moon Rising and, and Evil and stuff like mm. that. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Are you are you a big time music collector, Julian?
2: Hmm. Not really. I kind of. I, not really. I, I wouldn't say so. I don't. I don't devote like a lot of uh, physical real estate in my house to a record collection. I have like a. I have a. A cabinet with my records in it, but. Um, I have also sold off a lot of it in the last like 10 years. I have moved around a lot in the last probably like 15 years, um, just from like apartment to apartment um, up until like the la- last couple of years where my wife and I, I got married and, and we moved into a house together. Uh, but before that, I was, I was moving around a lot. I was single. I was also spending a lot of time as part of my, um, I got a PhD a, a few years ago. I, I finished and... Um, my research was in India, so I was going to India a lot. And so it, um, it became kind of annoying to have to move like box and boxes and boxes of records. So I ended up selling a lot of my record collection. Um, but anything that was like really important to me, I kept around. I don't really know exactly how many records it is that, that I have hung on onto, but, um, but you know, it's not, there's people I know, like, especially people who DJ, uh, Those people, like when you go into their living rooms, they'll have like you know huge LP collections. I don't have anything like that. Um, I just have like one relatively modest cabinet with records in it. Uh, But then I, you know, I keep stuff digitally too. I'm not. I'm not. I do like the sound of vinyl quite a bit, and I like. um, But I'm not like a big. uh, The medium is not too important to me. I'll listen to music on any medium, more or less. So um i keep stuff digitally too but not a crazy amount
0: i i'm just uh, uh going back to the fall briefly
2: yeah
0: <laughs> it was a, just a, a story came in the uh did you see it today ben there was a st- maybe you didn't because you don't do twitter too. but the, uh there's a, a, a music website called the quietest which is really great
2: right yeah uh, and
0: they, they tweeted a news article that Marky smith's house the yeah. line, uh, has just gone up for sale oh really um so they had, a, they had a bunch of photos from the, uh, the, um, estate agent. Wow. Um, so, and it's just still full of all his stuff. Really? Yeah. There's just loads of his stuff still in, just in the house. Just like, I mean, he wasn't a tidy man by the looks of this. <laughs> <laughs> Surely sure he wasn't. Eh?
2: But the, so the house but, is going to be sold with the stuff in it, or is there going to be an estate sale or something like that? I don't know. I mean, the, the wow. assumption... I, I
0: guess they're going to clear it out, but that currently, if you oh. go to for a viewing, you're just going to see all this all Marky Smith shit line around books wow, and clothes,
1: it. and notebooks
0: and uh, what, are
1: you, what are you doing tomorrow, mate? <laughs> <up like> <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: I know it's it's bloody tempting, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's only like an hour and a bit away from here. Yeah, that I mean that's they sh- uh, I guess they must uh, serious offers only <laughs> to be in and.
1: I feel, I don't know how I
2: feel about that. I feel a little sad, but. I, mean. sad, yeah. I know. Yeah. There's, there's like a voyeuristic part of me where it's like, oh man, I kind of want to see what kind of stuff he had mm-hmm. around. Um, just cause he's a person I respect. And it's like, you know, I wonder what, what, what he lived with, what his space looked like. But at the same time, it's like, man, what if I died right now? Would I want like a bunch of strangers like looking through my stuff? Um, but uh, no one would want to look through my stuff, I don't think. But, but yeah, <laughs> But there is a part of me that, that is really curious about what was in his yeah. house. It's fascinating. I'm reading
0: Brick Brick's, uh, Smith's um, autobiography at the moment, which Ben bought for me. And uh, I've just um, gone through the part where, or just recently read through the part where she moves from Beverly Hills to uh-huh. a very um, affluent upbringing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, from a very well-to-do family, yeah. and she, the the whole description of of her meeting Marquis e. Smith, <laughs> and utterly in love with each other. It's she writes about it so beautifully. It's really, really lovely the way yeah. that she describes this whirlwind of of um um love that they both become swept up in, yeah. uh, and then she decides. Uh, 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 he says, "Come, come and live in Manchester with me. I'll produce your music and blah blah blah." So they, 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 he flies her over at the end of the fall tour to go and live with, with him, wow. and she arrives in Manchester in the uh, late, uh, late uh, early nineties, huh? uh, late eighties, early nineties, and it, uh, describing how colorless and awful it is. Mm. And she said, hey, let's go to <laughs> my house and pull up this huge house. And she says, "You live here." Uh, well, I live. I live here along with lots of other people. This is horrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a of flats been converted, and going into the, going into the his flat, and there's just all of his ex girlfriend stuff is there just on the floor. <laughs> and, uh, so let's make a cup of tea. And she's kind of looking around, thinking, "This. What have I got? This is a hovel. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm coming. laughs> have you got a fridge? No, I haven't got a fridge. Where's your milk? Oh, it's on the window ledge. On all the, the
1: that's all, brilliant. All,
0: all the cold uh, refrigerated goods on the windows because it's so fucking freezing in manchester <laughs> yeah. just pulls up the window but there's his milk on the i feel yeah. like
2: that's it's that's a that's a classic classic uk style when i when I, I studied abroad in aberdeen and all my friends would keep their milk outside their window no one does that it's kind of interesting it, like i live in a place that's colder than scotland and i've never seen anyone do that
1: yeah, you, you could be the first, you could set a new trend, get, yeah, some, guess, uh, get some milk on your window. still. So. come on.
2: Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Sorry. I totally, I totally took us away from the conversation there, but it did. That the, sounds like a pit. good,
2: I, I want, I kind of want to read that. That sounds like it would be a good tour read, uh, whenever touring. Yeah. They are, they are
1: start, starting to become one of the most widely written and about bands, aren't they? There's so many fall books to work your way through.
0: Yeah, the drummer's one is meant to one, one. The the drummer. I mean, what a stupid thing to say. One of the drummers, <laughs> Simon. I've forgotten his name. Uh, his drum is meant to. Uh, his book is supposed to be fantastic. Um, but yeah, Bricks's one is is wonderful. Yeah, really good. Ben, take us back. Put us back on track. Yeah, yeah. Mate.
1: Well, well, I was thinking you, you mentioned your you mentioned your kind of studies. Yeah. Um, and you're traveling and also earlier on you were talking about your the the sort of the your mum's Ukrainian roots and that did that did was there the the Ukrainian folk music on in your house growing up was that where the kind of love of folk music kind of stems from or no actually
2: no I I was totally um I think I feel like I was totally disconnected from that stuff when I was a kid we I, I didn't grow up in like I grew up a few hours away from where my mom's family was. Her parents both died uh, before I was even born. Her dad died pretty young. And um, so I never even met him. And he was the one that that was the musician. Uh, And I think I think it was just maybe um, a facet of the time in America where when my mom was growing up and when her siblings were growing up uh, during the Cold War, it wasn't a particularly like cool thing to like identify strongly with something that uh, came across as being Russian adjacent. Um, so like even though they grew up, they grew up in an area that uh, has a lot of Ukrainians and um, has a lot of Russian people too, and a lot of Polish people. Uh, they, I mean, my mom maybe speaks like she speaks a little bit of Ukrainian, but not really. It's only like her older siblings that speak the language even. Um, They don't like, you know, aside from like, you know, those siblings of hers that are religious, uh, that still go to like Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Most of them aren't like my mom's not religious at all. So she's not connected through that and that it seems like in those kinds of communities. um, I think it's different for like uh, Ukrainian Americans that live in big cities like New York and Chicago where there are other um, outlets uh, or connections to Ukrainian culture besides going to church, I think where my mom grew up, which was pretty rural. The only connection they would have to other Ukrainians was through their church. Um, And so, yeah, you know, like the extent of it really is just like cooking a few Ukrainian dishes and stuff like that, but um, she wasn't she didn't really care that much about Ukrainian folk music and listening to that around the house or anything. So uh, and I didn't know really too many other Ukrainians where I grew up. I I guess I knew a few, but not really that many. so no it was and it what yeah, I, I don't think like neither of my parents really listened to folk music at all and um and it wasn't really like much of a thing that like other kids were listening to when I was a kid. So I, I don't think I was exposed to like a lot of folk music until um I was in college and then after college I got a job at Smithsonian Folkways recordings, and from there I, I was exposed to like, you know, lots of cool stuff. Uh that's, that's a, do you guys, do you guys know that label? Uh, it's like, um, it has a long hi- history. It, it was a label that was founded as like a private label in the 1940s, but then got acquired by the Smithsonian Institution, um, which is, uh, sort of like a, a, a um, it's a federal program basically, uh, in the United States. And now they have a catalog of like something like over 10,000 records that they, uh, they make available. They make everything available digitally. And there's just like, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. The, the, the focus originally originally was uh, American folk music, but then they acquired all these other labels that were doing stuff with, you know, what at the time was called world music. Um, so it was just like this crazy spectrum of, of like folk musics from all over the world that I had access to when I was working there. I worked there as a, uh, I worked in the mailroom. So I was like packing up record orders and they let me listen to whatever I wanted to there, so um, I just like listened to anything I could get my hands on that sounded cool to me out of the catalog. You know, there's also there's other cool stuff in that catalog too, like um, like 20th century classical records and stuff like that. So there's a there's a uh, John Cage record that was released on Folkways, so I'd listen to that stuff there too, and I think that exposed me to more folk music than having a close relative that was a folk musician, ironically.
0: Uh, it, it is that what led you towards your studies that uh, mm-hmm. is that how, that was the gateway to that could you say t- t- tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah absolutely so uh i studied anthropology in college um in part because at the time i i felt uh i felt a little bit uh directionless about what i wanted to study and after taking a few anthropology classes it seemed to me like this is a subject in which I can kind of write about a lot of different things in my essays. I could write about music if I wanted to. I could write about art. I could write about like television. So, you know, anything in the world of media, but I, I could also write about like philosophy or, um, you know, I could write about just, you know, lots of other things that that were of interest to me at the time. Um, so I didn't feel like studying that would be as limiting as, um, as becoming a music major or a philosophy major, art history major or something like that. Um, Plus it had this sort of science dimension to it where I was kind of into taking biology classes anyway, so I could continue taking a few biology classes. Uh, It just seemed like the the right thing for me to study at the time. And then I finished college, realized that I couldn't do anything with a bachelor's in anthropology. I was basically unemployable. Uh, (laughs) I worked like a few jobs as a barista um, which is ironic cause I never, I went I was probably the only person at my college that didn't drink coffee at all. I, <laughs> I never drink coffee and then I started working as a barista and got addicted to it. Uh, and then I, I started as an intern at folkways while I was still selling coffee and, um, this position in the mailroom opened up and I was like, I, I will train for free in that position. Like, can you please hire me? So I applied for it and I got the job. Um, And then that was the first time I met ethnomusicologists uh, and I met anthropologists that were working specifically with, with music. Um, And I kind of broadened uh, my understanding of what kind of topics he could write about when it came to music. Um, So I I was really interested in that. And I knew, you know, I didn't want to keep working in the mailroom. I wanted to do something more than that. And I was like, well, with, the skill set that I built up in college, it seems like going to grad school is maybe um, a logical next step. And if I can get funded, then then that's perfect. So I, I applied to a program and I, I was able to get funding and, um, you know, ended up starting this master's program in ethnomusicology and that turned into a PhD program in ethnomusicology and anthropology. And, um, now I found on the other end of it, I'm still more or less just as unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us about the travels that you did as
1: part of that study, Julian.
2: Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I I think, I, I can't remember the exact moment where, where I sort of uh, decided I wanted to study musical issues in India specifically, but it was pretty early on. And um, I wrote a master's thesis that had to do with... Uh, some archival research I did, um, on music in, uh, in the late colonial period in India. And that led to a trip, my first trip to India to go do work in the national archives in Delhi. Um, and then from there, I developed this other project that I wanted to work on that turned into my dissertation project, my PhD dissertation. And that led to a whole, whole series of trips to India over the course of like five years or so. Um, so my, I, uh, do you want more detail on like the kind of stuff I was I was working on, or yeah? Sure, yeah. So my my master's thesis uh, was about um, what were called music before mosque riots. There are riots that happened in Indian cities, starting in the late 19th century, going into the early 20th century, and then it sort of died down a little bit. <clears throat> Although the, this kind of conflict, you know, you can find more recent examples of it even, but it really exploded um in the late 19th century early 20th century and it would happen when um uh hindu festival processions were led with loud music in front of mosques during prayer so there'd be muslims in the mosque trying to pray and all of a sudden there'd be this loud band from like a hindu festival outside they'd come outside they'd be pissed off and then the people in the procession would be pissed off and it led over and over again to like huge bloody riots all across India. Um, And a lot of it had to do with the very rapid development of Indian cities. Obviously, Indian cities are some of the largest cities in the world. And uh, um, the process of urbanization was really rapid there in the 19th century. So you had all these people that used to be rural people. um, They could play their music as loud as they wanted to. And now they're living adjacent to a mosque, uh, not understanding the new, you know, way of the land or not understanding um, exactly how to to navigate a new geography and um, something uh, that we think of as being as innocuous as music became a big point of contention and it became something that people would kill each other over so i wrote my master's thesis about that and then um when i when i was in india i started reading in the newspaper about um contention uh in indian cities in particular in mumbai over uh, complaints about noise pollution. Um, and uh, in fact, in Mumbai, a lot of articles, there, You know, it's a constant issue in Mumbai, if you like pick up a newspaper on any given day of the year, especially during festival season, you'll read a journalist talking about people getting upset about noise pollution. And a lot of times when they use that term noise pollution, they're actually talking about Hindu festivals in particular or religious festivals more generally, especially Hindu festivals. Which often have you know they're really I don't know if you ever seen like videos of Hindu festivals. Um, They're very vibrant. They're very loud. Uh, They you know there's a lot of music that happens. There's a lot of there'll be like you know multiple DJs playing like loud electronic music at night. There'll also be like a bunch of bands playing marching down the street and stuff like that. Um, But you know as I I spend more time in India and was like reading the newspaper each day. I was like especially when I when I started going to Mumbai more often. Became clear that this was like, um, this is a part of people's lives there that uh, that um, seemed to me to be directly related to what I was writing about with my master's thesis. So um, that's that's kind that was kind of my starting point for this project on on uh, noise and Hindu festivals in Mumbai, and um, it basically involved participant observation research with uh, both musicians that that earn most of their year's income from playing during festivals, as well as um, sort of self-styled anti-noise activists or anti-noise pollution activists. These people who go out and like, will um, they have like uh, decibel meters and they'll take measurements of of all the festival events in the city. They'll write it up. They'll send it to the city. They'll file suits against the people that organize the events. Um, The interesting thing that I found in doing this stuff was this kind of fascinating political dimension to all of this. this sorry if, I, if I'm now going into too much detail, but this is like, but this is what like really like, you know, uh, sealed the deal for me in terms of wanting to write about this was um, uh, these loud events have become a staple to the political campaign process in Indian cities because the organizers of events um, are actually sort of contracted by major political parties to hold events as promotional vehicles for people that are running for office, uh, and so now they have this vested interest in making sure anti noise pollution activists don't actually quiet the streets down because they rely on these big events to get people out um, and to show them, you know, like you know, we we're the we're the best politician in Mumbai. We're the, we're the person you should you should vote for. We're throwing the best party. Um, it's kind of reached sort of a stalemate because of this, because there's a lot of money in politics anywhere. uh, And especially the way like politics work in in a city like Mumbai, there's a lot of money thrown into ensuring that these events stay the way that they are, stay uh, the volume that they are. So, you know, I never, I never would imagine starting this project that it it would reveal this tension between anti-noise activists who are, you know, they're not people that hate music. They're, they're ostensibly like environmental activists. They, they approach a lot of this stuff from an environmentalist point of view, um, but there's this tremendous tension between them and, uh, and politicians in the city. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of that was kind of the basis of my dissertation project and um, wrote some articles kind of related to that stuff and got those published, but then decided that I didn't want to go down the traditional academic path um, in part, because by that point, I was already playing in real estate. I was touring extensively and um, I met someone and got married and uh, going down an academic path would mean that I would have to move to a different city and we didn't want to do that. My wife's family lives here in Wisconsin. So it's important to us to stay here. And also, um, you know, we wanted to have a kid and it seemed like uh, in a weird way, like the way that real estate tours is kind of conducive to. taking care of a kid because I can be at home actually for like more than two thirds of the year, really um, just being a professional dad. And then, you know, of course, have have to go on the road for a few weeks at a time a uh, bunch of times throughout the year. But um, yeah, so, so that's kind of where, where I've ended up. Well, no, I was just, I, I was just thinking, um,
1: this may be a little bit obvious, but I was thinking, how do you relate that experience to, um, of being seeing that kind of political turmoil in India yeah. back to the, you know the current situation or the last few years in the states yeah. and the kind of political dimension how does that kind of impact for you
2: uh so there's there's tremendous parallels actually between indian politics um especially in the state where mumbai is in maharashtra and american politics uh, I, and i was doing this research you know like around like leading up to 2016 and then just after that too. So like, um, a lot of, uh, political changes that happened in India kind of anticipated ones that happened in the U S especially when it comes to like right-wing populism, um, which has been exploding in India for a very long time. There's, there's like a a very uh, robust, um, right-wing populist, uh, movement throughout India that kind of has like um, regional iterations, especially where I was. There's like a very uh, region specific kind of um, right wing populist political uh, um, sort of uh, consciousness among a lot of people. But, um, you know, when I talk to people that that uh, were into that kind of stuff in India, even in like 2016 or 2015, I talked to them about, you know, what do you think about the US election? Who do you think is gonna win? Um, who do you like? Uh, and a lot of them like related quite a lot to Donald Trump. Uh, there was there was like this, you know, sort of immediate recognition that there's like a relationship between Trump's politics and, and the way that Trump talks to a crowd actually, and the way that Indian politicians kind of operate um, more so than like, you know, right-wing politicians that came before trump he he has like in a weird way he has like a very indian style to like his politics and, and i think a lot of like these like new morons that have arisen because of trump um they're they're kind of taking after this style that almost seems like he studied uh right-wing politicians in india and other places in the world there's there's kind of there's a lot of similarities there but um yeah but i think that's all part of like sort of sort of like a global trend though because you know there are lots of places in europe where similar things have happened in the last five years um yeah and there's you know there's places in latin america of course where similar things have happened in the last five years um it's i don't know i don't know why why if i i i could only i could only speculate why this is a thing that's happening globally um but uh but yeah, there's a lot of like resonances between Indian politics and American politics. It's pretty crazy.
0: Did you find uh, when, as an academic, mm-hmm. going about your, uh, sort of the research that you were doing, were people willing, how willing were people to, to to speak with you about, you know, given the, how contentious the subject was for some people and, and what, what it stirred up? Did you find it easy to get people to talk to you?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm lucky that I, have done research in India as opposed to, I don't know, you know, any number of other places where like, if you approach strangers on the street, you know, even if I was, if I was doing research in Chicago or New York or something like that.
0: Yeah. No that one sounds terrifying. Yeah, no <laughs> one would.
2: <laughs> I personally, if like an anthropologist came up to me and was like, Hey, I'm, a, I'm an anthropological researcher. I'm doing participant observation research. I'd love to like, um, tour with real estate or something like, that. I'd love to like enter your home and, and talk to you. Uh, i would be incredibly cynical of that and i wouldn't want to talk to them in india though it's remarkable like people are um especially towards like a white westerner they're they're very uh open they they're very especially when it comes to like you know talking about things that are a lot of times like sensitive or uncomfortable talking about uh, in the west um people are people are like happy to share their thoughts on politics on religion and um economics other things that might make like an american more uncomfortable to talk about but uh yeah well that wasn't ever the problem really in india i i I can't believe how nice people were to me it it was awesome i can't believe how especially like um when i started meeting like musicians uh they learned and they learned that i was a musician too they were like oh well you have to play with us it's like yeah that's that i like you you i didn't even have to ask that's awesome like you're inviting me now like You know, and then they would invite me to all their individual houses to meet their families and stuff like that. And um, it was really cool. It was was a really amazing thing. So I ended up playing countless shows during that that time uh, in India, which is kind of kind of crazy. Like, I don't think I've never really talked to the guys in real estate about this. But like while I was there, like I was in real estate, but um, when I was in Mumbai, like I was in the newspaper a bunch of times because I played played a few shows uh with this band and end up in this newspaper you know like american anthropological researchers like playing shows with this that's great group. yeah um yeah it's pretty pretty amazing so like even like journalists like would uh would get in touch with me and they'd be like hey we hear that you're you're playing with this band and uh um that's really weird we that's not something that we usually see and we want to talk to you about it um and then that would that would lead to me you know, starting a relationship with a journalist and being like, okay, well, you, if you want to talk to me about that, I, I'd love to talk to you about like your insight into n- noise pollution stuff that you've written about for this newspaper or whatever. So yeah, I, I it, it was very, uh, um, is it, it's an easy place to meet people. And um, it became like really mutually beneficial. I think that there was this kind of openness there.
1: Did you, did you record any music with those people when you were there?
2: Um, yeah, actually, uh, so I'm sure like a lot of the performances that we did were probably like recorded, uh, at some point, but I also went to a studio at some point and, um, recorded some guitar in a studio, but I don't, I don't know if I have access to the finished product or that. I don't know if they ever sent it to me. I mean, that was actually with a different group that I met through like one of the members of that group, who's a singer. He asked me to go to the studio with him and, and do some recording. Um, yeah, I, I kind of want to track that down because if, if he has a recording of that, I, I want that. But
0: uh... yeah, well, you could come and share it with us on here <laughs> with, yeah. with with your, with your, with your yeah. colleague in India. That would be a lovely follow up. Yeah, of, that'd so. be awesome,
1: Yeah,
0: yeah it really would. Yeah, what an incredible experience and and another uh, a set of experiences through being musician and being open and. Um, uh, wanting to connect with people through your music has taken you, you know, uh, d- down, giving you those experiences. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah uh, uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Um, well, look, we are we're we're over over the hour mark. Uh, so I think we'll probably look to start to wrap things up, especially yeah. as you are a new dad and no doubt exhausted. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Ben, is there anything else you wanted to uh, uh, ask at the end before we wrap things up?
1: You, uh, I think you've talked about how joining real estate and playing music with other people kind of re-energized your own work. And I think they read a quote where you said, everyone needs social interaction and it can be healthy to see what others are doing. It wasn't just my creation and in my mind, my failure. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit more and about the, the, the effect it had on joining the band and effect on your
2: own uh, music writing? sure yeah i'm not sure what i was talking about with that quote but um but i i know i remember when i joined the band um uh it kind of felt i mean this is how i felt for years i still feel like this where um i feel like my my energies are always kind of torn between like well am i am i a musician or am i an academic or am i yeah i've worked a bunch of jobs over the years too which like the, the other guys in real estate you know since I, I, I want to say like 2010, somewhere around there, they've, they've just done real estate professionally. Um, and I've, I haven't done that even since joining real estate. Uh, I've worked a bunch of different jobs and in the last year I've like once the pandemic hit and touring fell apart, like I, I've worked a whole bunch of jobs. I never thought I would work, uh, you know, jobs having to do with jobs and healthcare and having to do with COVID and stuff like that. Um, and so, I think there were, there were definitely times in my life before joining real estate where it was like, okay, well, I don't, um, really have the time that is required to like put into touring, especially I never, I never really tour. I like recording, but at this point, I don't know if it's worth like devoting myself to that. Um, so, uh, you know, there were definitely like lulls in my creative output as a musician, um, where I was sort of probably in some ways convincing myself I wasn't I wasn't going to be doing music uh, anymore um, and then once I joined real estate it was like oh, okay yeah this, this is a this is a good reminder that like I actually love doing this this is like something that I always wanted to do never thought I, I think a lot of my life decisions were motivated by the fear that I wouldn't um, I wouldn't be able to successfully be a musician um but here I've like lucked out into a situation where you know people have already heard of this band, people already want to pay ticket, pay money for a ticket to go see a concert. Um, this is a great opportunity for me to like sort of refocus some energy when I'm not on tour into like my own musical pursuits uh, because I do find it really rewarding and I I do like the the music that I'm able to make. So um, yeah, I think that was that maybe that was what I was talking about when I when I said it was energizing. I also think you know uh whenever you like work on anything in a vacuum um you sort of lose uh there's something lost i think um where no no there's no input really when when it's just yourself uh you you need uh some interaction with other human beings in order to have new ideas flowing and i think just playing with other musicians again was like really useful to me in that way because uh, there's only so much you can do you know forcing inspiration out of just like listening to to recordings but like actually getting to be in a room with other people and like playing m- material with them and watching it change and um, well this is maybe a good way to wrap things up actually because it, it does definitely tie yeah it ties back to also the also a but recording um You know, if I just if I pursued that demo as it was, it would have ended up, you know, a a more polished version of the thing that I initially recorded. It would have been like ultimately fairly similar. um, But like there really is no there is no way for me to predict the ways that it would change by sharing it with four other people, five other people, if you include the producer, um, each of them having their own ideas about about like, oh, well, it would be cool if, if it did this kind of thing here. Or it'd be cool if you brought in this kind of sound on on the drums or the keyboard. Um, those are things like I'm only one person. I would, never would have conceived of those things, uh, and so having those connections to other people really is is, uh, is what drives creativity. I think in a lot of ways.
0: I don't think we've had a smoother segue out <laughs> of an episode oh, of this there
2: podcast. You go. <laughs> yeah, perfect.
1: Yeah, beautifully done, Julian. <laughs>
0: uh, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating and thoroughly enjoyable to meet and speak with you this evening thank you very much likewise
2: yeah i really like talking yeah it you. really has i hope, can I, hope just, I can make it over to england and wales again sometime soon and you guys should come come out to a show put you on the list you guys hang out talk more about music
1: yeah, yeah. let's let's do that and maybe we'll find another route to, to hook up for another conversation somewhere on the podcast uh, that would be my pleasure.
2: pleasure yeah i'd love that. Yeah. We'll-
0: That would be great. Um, Can we just wrap up with you introducing the demos, please?
2: Of course, yeah. So you are about to listen to a couple different demos. Uh, One is the original demo version of Also a Butt that I recorded, I think, in April 2017 for the band Real Estate. Then the second thing you're going to listen to is a rehearsal recording that was taken either on my cell phone or Martin Courtney's cell phone of Real Estate rehearsing an early version of Also a Butt.
1: Thanks Julian. Uh-huh. Thank yeah, you. Thanks Julian.